Welcome to the Data Strategy Show. My name's Samir Sharma, and I'll be your host for the next 60 minutes. My guest today is Regan Avon. Regan is the CEO and co-founder of Iconis Analytics. She has a background in integrated systems engineering and a strong focus on analytical technology. Regan has worked on architecting solutions and products around operationalizing machine learning models at scale within the large enterprise. Regan was also a critical piece in developing the fundamental process architecture for one of the leading product companies in model operations, ModelOp. Regan's previous experience has been fueled by a passion for early stage startups and product development. She is also founder and CEO of Women in Analytics, a global community to support the visibility of women making an impact in the analytics field. I hope you enjoy this episode. Please do like, share and comment. And thanks for listening. Regan Avon, welcome to the Data Strategy Show. It's a real pleasure to have you on the show, Regan. And uh, listen, Regan, why don't you just tell us a little bit about yourself and your background? Sure. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me on the show. This show is awesome. So I'm really, really pleasure. excited to be a part of it. Thank you. Um, so a little bit about my background. I studied in um, industrial systems engineering. That's kind of what my original trade is in. And uh, from there, I focused on computer science. And so with that blend of like that process engineering background and computer science, I kind of yield itself perfectly into analytics. Um, and so I, I focused on analytics and I've been in the analytics industry for the last eight years. Um, and when I started out, I had a huge emphasis on data engineering. So I was doing mm -hmm. a lot of really detailed tactical work and data engineering, um, as well as some data science courses I was teaching. Um, so basically the, the core fundamentals of data science. Um, and then I, I found myself in the product world. So I kind of blended a lot of that technical work I was doing in data and analytics um, into the product world and eventually found myself doing a lot of governance strategy and um, overall overarching um, designing of teams and technical uh, architecture and mm -hmm. systems. And so that's kind of where I've found myself today. We launched Iconos Analytics uh, in 2020. And so that's what we are focused on. Great, great. Listen, so there's a lot there. You've had a really rich and varied background. Um, let me just start with Women in Analytics. Now you are the founder of women in analytics, right? So great, great initiative, and I love it. And I've got a, a friend, a colleague, and now friend of mine, Kathleen Mailey, who, who is um, who, who always supports it, um, and is and I believe was on your last uh, uh, event. Tell me, what was the catalyst for founding that? What went through? You know, you had eight years of of being in the industry. What what did you see that made you say, do you know, I really need to do something in this area? And and why? What what was the time factor for you? Yeah, I mean, so, you know, I started Women in Analytics because it was really kind of selfish. I kept mm -hmm. going to like different meetups and, um, you know, at the time I was just getting started. And one of the first things I do when I, when I want to learn something is I, I meet other people who know it and are passionate about it and want to talk about it all the time. So I was trying to find a network um, of individuals who are passionate about this topic and mm -hmm. I noticed that that network was rather non-diverse. And so I, I thought to myself, all right, well, I'll just create some evening event called Women in Analytics, invite some women speakers um, and just see who shows. 
And lo and behold, 120 people showed up. And wow. I was like, wow, okay, I'm not the <laughs> this only is a one. Thing. <laughs> yeah. I'm not the only one who was yeah. like dying to meet mm. other people in the analytics space. So after that, I'm like, well, you know, it was very beneficial for me. So I know it was beneficial for others to meet all the different people that showed up. Um, and so we just started hosting these big conferences and they kept getting bigger and bigger. I mean, we sold out every year. Um, wow. So I knew there was a thirst for it. Mm -hmm. um, and this past year we switched to uh, doing more kind of virtual events and also um, built out a, a membership platform so we can continue to provide resources and networking opportunities for um, people in this space that is diverse. Mm -hmm. um, so that's mm -hmm. how it started and yeah. um, how it's going. Yeah. Brilliant. <laughs> Brilliant. And I like the angle of diversity because I, I, I often see that as a predominance of, you know, um, uh, just general events at, at the moment. You know, we don't see that diversity. And mm -hmm. um, and I think it's uh, it's a testament to, to you, certainly for, for doing something like that, that cuts across such a, a, a great sort of, you know, a, I would not not a huge big barrier, but something that helps it along. And, and often many of these things are started through a selfish kind of feeling, right? You know, mm -hmm. like I need to learn. So what has that taught you over the years? Because, you know, it's, it's, it's a pretty big event now, as you say, mm -hmm. what, what is this whole area now? Um, you've built it into quite a scalable uh, uh, an event. And as you say, micro communities, what does it mean to you? And what does it mean to the people out there? And, and where do you see it sort of moving? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, for me, it's been immensely valuable. Um, even launching my own business this past year, the the value of a network, I just can't even describe how valuable that is. Um, I always say, like, if you're if you need your network, um, it's too late for you to start establishing it. And so mm -hmm. I always tell people, keep doing it at all, all times. Connect with people, um, make friends in the industry. And eventually you'll be able to help each other out in some way, shape or form. And that's rung true for me specifically, but I've seen it become true for a lot of different people who are involved in this community as well. Um, I remember back to being in college, how it used to be really fun to like get five or six of us together to go have a study session when we're trying to like understand a new concept. And mm -hmm. sometimes it can feel really alone, like trying to learn these really complex topics. And so... I wanted to create a similar experience where people could go find other people in the community who wanted to learn the same thing. They sure. could talk to them. They could find a mentor. They could find somebody who's been doing it for 10 plus years mm. and they could do it in an environment where they felt safe. And so I've seen a lot of people really take advantage of that. Um, and so, as you mentioned, these micro communities are popping mm. up quite a bit because of this. We want to collaborate with each other and Unfortunately and fortunately for analytics individuals, if you don't continue your education, you're going to fall behind very quickly. Yeah, yeah. And so these micro communities are, are, are sort of scaling out, obviously, in different locations, regions. Is that just across the U.S. or is that a, a global effect? I think it's a global effect. Yeah. And I think the fact that we're all in a virtual environment is kind of a catalyst for that, too. Yeah. We're trying to find, you know, meetup.com was a whole thing and you could get in these kind of micro communities in person 
And now we're all virtual. So people are looking to find that same kind of intimate community setting virtually as well. And so I just see that popping up again and again and again. Mm. So what have the challenges been for a lot of the, the, the ranks of diversity within this analytic space? What have you seen that people have come to say, oh my God, you know, this has been so good, but for these reasons, because the industry is quite challenging. What would you say that, the, you know, what, what have been those factors? Yeah, I think, um, you know, one of the big pieces for me was, um, and a lot of people talk about this from the perspective of diversity, but you, it's easier for you to envision yourself doing something if you see someone like you doing mm-hmm. that thing. Mm-hmm. So for us, it's been about perspective. We know there are extremely talented people in the analytics industry with diverse backgrounds. Yeah. And we want to give them a platform so that they can talk about things they're passionate about in analytics and give them visibility because the more visibility we can surface um, of these diverse individuals, the more welcoming the communities get for analytics. And so the more people want to come in and, and, and join the conversation. Sure. And I've seen that specifically get people really excited. Mm, mm. And I think that's a good point because uh, you, you mentioned something on um, one of your um, posts on LinkedIn that if we don't have diversity, if we don't have this spread of different kinds of thinking and uh, diverse networks or people, then our models are going to demonstrate mm-hmm. the same. Tell me a little bit about that. Tell me a little bit about your views on, on, on model bias and why they, they, it continues to happen. Yeah, I and in fact, I, I wrote about this. We just so women in analytics just published a book. Okay, uh, we launched great. it last week. Congrats! And <laughs> thank you. Um, I didn't do a lot besides curate the articles, but Wonderful. there are forty-five women who are represented in the book um, yes. and who have articles. Yes, and um, I, I wrote in the preface uh, in my section about this very topic, which was um, essentially, if we think about analytics. It is our way of trying to model the world mm-hmm. as mm-hmm. we see it, Yeah. right? So we're trying to take something super complex and we're trying to represent it through data we've collected about mm-hmm. it and the statistics and relationships between that data. Mm-hmm. And then we use that to make decisions on what we should do next. And so if in fact, analytics is our closest representation of reality, and each of us sees reality from our own experiences, then analytics is really kind of your interpretation of reality mixed with data. Mm -hmm. And so if we have very diverse people who experience the world in different ways, collaborate together and to build and design these things, then they become more representative of people who are affected by it. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. And so you know, it, as much as people say data doesn't lie, it lies all the time. <laughs> well, um, you can make it lie. Absolutely. Yeah, you can yeah. make it say whatever you yeah, want. Yeah, of course you can. Yeah. Um, and so that's what's so important is just making sure we have the right checks and balances in place. That's great. No, I, I like that because I think, you know, I, I put a post out on bias this week, this last weekend, and it is actually um, been such a huge subject. And I think it's one of the thorns in the, an- the side of analytics that still continues. Mm-hmm. But let's, let's um, I mean, bias is a massive subject, but I don't think we can really, you know, we, the narrative would be too long. Um, but let, let's switch uh, gears slightly. You talked about being a data engineer 
for mm -hmm. a, a long period of time. Plus you did strategy and architecture and so on. I, you know, I think data engineering probably is is the poorer cousin of data science, um, you know, and it's it's not it's not talked about enough, and I still see on LinkedIn and other forums, you know, uh, what's the difference between a data engineer and a data scientist? So, you know, for our listeners out there, I get that a lot. Um, so, what would you say to those people listening to the show? What what is the difference, and why is one, you know, not necessarily better, but how do they complement each other? Yeah, they're, they're d definitely different. Um, I mean, there are the, the really talented individuals out there that can do both. Um, and those a really people are really tiny fun amount of people. Yeah. And they're very expensive, no doubt. <laughs> really rare to find them, but yeah. they can. Yeah, I would say, you know, the data engineer is the person thinking about the movement of data. So they're thinking about where the data is stored. They're thinking about where it needs to go, what needs what, what system needs to access it in what format? We're talking about the pipelines yes. of data. Yeah. The data scientists are creating the math around the data. So, you know, when they've built a model um, and they've trained a model, yes, they're doing some data engineering work, right? They have to do some SQL queries to get sure, data sure. out of whatever they need. Mm -hmm. um, but they're not doing the production level pipelining work. And that is totally different. Yeah. Um, when we're going to go put a model, a piece of math in a production system, it needs to connect to a pipeline of data that is always there. They're in the most efficient and cost-effective way. Mm -hmm. And that I would never really expect a data scientist to know how to do. Sure. Yeah. No, I, I agree with that. And I think the, the principles remain, yes, I'm sure we can find very few people who have the capacity to do both mm -hmm. and and they're very unique i'm sure you know typically unicorn type mm -hmm. you know people and i think there is a separation it, it is the data engineer does the data engineer need to understand some algorithmic kind of concepts do they need to get into that and be able to have the conversation with the data scientist um, I would say there's definitely a handoff point. Mm -hmm. There needs to be some level of abstraction that they can both kind of meet in the yeah, middle yeah, and yeah. talk to each other on because mm -hmm. you have kind of like the movement and the ETL portion of these data pipelines. And then you have some feature engineering that gets done that yeah. might be, you know, a little more statistically advanced mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, than like joins and, and other yeah. kind of basic commands. Um, and then you have like the more complex modeling that happens, like the training pipelines and the scoring pipelines. So, you know, they need to come together and say like, here's my schema <clears throat> that I'm going to use. Here's the kinds of transformations that of the data that need to happen. I don't know that data engineers necessarily need to understand the complexity of, you know, the algorithm that's being applied. Um, but there needs to be some like common language between mm -hmm. the two of them. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and, and what are typically some of the challenges you've seen between um, the two aspects and within that pipeline and then sort of working in the algorithm and, and not really thinking about that end product or the, 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 the productionization of it, as you've said? Yeah, the, I see the biggest challenge is um, not, having, not being very strict on that layer of abstraction between the two of them, because 
the data scientist is living in kind of this chaotic world of research, <laughs> okay. right? Yeah. Where they're, they're like, yeah, oh, this looks good. This works. Yep. This doesn't work. I've thrown that out. I've added this in, right? It's this like mad scientist image that comes into our heads. Um, and so at the end of the day, they have this set of data that they need. Yeah. And um, they need to be able to let the data engineer know that that's exactly what they need, how they need it. Mm-hmm. And the data engineer needs to understand in what context are we deploying this thing? Like what's our latency requirement, so that they can make infrastructure level decisions or they can optimize the mm-hmm. systems accordingly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So the biggest problem I've seen is not having enough structure in place for the data scientists to say, this is exactly the way the model is expecting it. Here are all the parameters of that. Right. Um, it expects these types of values, but not these types of values. Okay. And these types of values exist, throw an error. Like those types of things need to be I see. ready. So, to ah, okay. So, so, so what we're saying is then the data scientist is doing his mad scientist bit, doing the, the whole, you know, uh, hypotheses building. No, that mm-hmm. doesn't work. This doesn't work. Oh, this looks good. Let's go down in different sort of business question or whatever it might be. At the same time, the data engineer is starting from a, a point of real infrastructure and saying, what do I need to support this to go into production and to make sure this good quality data an understanding of where that result is going to be output, whether that's mm-hmm. going to be to a system or a dashboard or, or whatever that endpoint might be, an application, et cetera, et cetera. But really building those pipelines that are robust, scalable, um, and, and don't live just in a sandbox somewhere that, you know, right. sort of it's to, to, to be played around with and so on. And then how does the, um, you know, you, you talk about this handoff between the data scientist and, and, and the data engineer. What, what's, what's the, is it the point where you, where the data engineer says, okay, now, or the data scientist says, the model is complete. I've given you the parameters, go productionize it. Is yes. there must be some kind of, you know, <laughs> view of the data scientist saying, well, whoa, 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 I need to, you know, also see the end to end as well, or is, or, you know, how, what, what's that bit? Yeah, so we we actually refer to this at Iconos as our in our integrated analytics framework. Um, and part of that is the upfront requirements and design that we go through. Mm-hmm. And so we talked a little bit about like the feed that goes into the model, but there's yeah. also all of these components that need to be persisted. And so there's like the scores need to be persisted and the feedback from the user needs to be persisted. and you know, if there are errors, we need to kind of log those somewhere. And so if we don't have this like end-to-end SaaS platform that's going to do that for us, um, a lot of organizations have to set this up and the data engineer is pretty critical for a lot of that. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so when you're going through this kind of productionalization of the model, um, it's really important to think about that input schema where you're saying my model expects this, here are the parameters around that, here's what Here's what's going to break it. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the, mm-hmm. the data scientist needs to help set those requirements. Right. And so yes. the data, data engineer can build for that. It's mm-hmm. essentially, they need to hand off requirements to the data yeah. engineer. Yeah, yeah. And then all the pieces that need to be persisted, they have to work with the app developers. They have to work with the data scientists. They have to understand um, what data is getting persisted where and mm-hmm. how are we going to analyze that data later. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and mm-hmm. so the data science, the data engineer has a lot of work to do. And yeah. a lot of organizations I've talked to has, have kind of like overlooked this a little okay. bit. 
Okay. Um, yeah. Or I've expected people on their team to take on those roles. And they're now trying to fill the gap of the data engineer. Right. Okay. So, and, and by those people who they think are going to fill these roles, are you talking about DBAs or are we talking about data analysts and, you know, the types of people who may be trained to a point, but just can't go that little bit further. Yes, yeah. for sure. Yeah. Um, so yeah, you get a lot of DBAs who have to mm. fill in that role. Mm. Um, you get, which again, you know, if you're not super familiar with the di different options of developing and testing and deploying data pipelines, um, you know, that may not be your level of expertise as a DBA. Sure. Um, and, you know, alternatively, uh, analysts can write some SQL code. Yeah. Um, so they could probably put a pipeline together. Maybe a data scientist could probably put a pipeline together. It's not going to be the most optimal, most likely. Mm. And, you know, there's a likelihood it could break. And if it breaks, yeah. what are the implications of that? Yeah. And then does the data engineer also need to understand the total um, I would say enterprise architecture, you know, cloud versus on-premise and how that kind of style of modular, you know, integrated analytics or how it all works and fits together. Yeah, a yeah. thousand percent. They right. have to be well-versed in what data lives where and what's going to be most optimal to move mm -hmm. it. Mm -hmm. Because their, their whole incentive is that they're building a robust pipeline that is cost-effective. Data movement is really expensive. This is why people are investing in virtualization platforms mm -hmm. that can mm -hmm. optimize that. Yep. There, there's data that lives in on-prem and data that lives in the cloud. And there are four specific reasons that they live there. Sure. And yeah. so if we're going to do some processing, is it better to move the data and process it or process it at a source and mm -hmm. grab that data and move that? And so mm -hmm. it's a whole kind of optimization mm -hmm. problem. So they're really working with other architects to, to, to come up with those types of solutions and make sure it's, it, it, it's economical and, and efficient enough for the organization, as well as the data scientist, but mm -hmm. as well as, you know, are, are they also thinking about, um, and, and here's, I think here's where I'm going with this, you know, the data engineer and the data science have done their, scientists have done their bit, and there's this endpoint, and you and I talk, you know, well, I think, you know, we, we've talked about it briefly before, but most people call it the last mile of analytics, and here's, I think, where the, the, the issue for me lies. Many models, many um, outputs have gone to an end user and they never really get used or they're not interpreted correctly or there's confusion that lays into what am I supposed to do with this? So, you know, where's that bit in your integrated analytics framework and how does that fit with the chunks or the modules that you've talked about um, and that endpoint and the usage factors? Yeah, it's, um, as you mentioned, we could come up with like the most flawless, <laughs> accurate model with the most optimized pipeline in the world. And we could make it available to the business. And then we could be like, we've done our job. Yep. Um, but if that, if that output doesn't mean something and isn't given to that individual or that system at the right time, it doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. So, you know, when we're talking about designing these systems or designing these models and these solutions, we have to really put a product management like hat okay. on. Okay. And so this last mile is not just getting an API endpoint to the right system at the right time. Mm -hmm. um, that's true. But also, are we providing enough context to the user? Does the user right. understand? 
and why this is providing value to them. Mm-hmm. Um, does the user understand in the grand scheme of things how this is moving the needle for their organization or they're part of the organization, which is where I typically find most of the problem mm-hmm. is that mm-hmm. we could build a model that gives me a better understanding of who's most likely to purchase a product. Sure. But if I don't understand how to use that information, do I send them an email? Do I call them? What does that do overall for our organization? Is it saving us money? Is it increasing the uh, um, the percentage of people who are actually purchasing the product? Can I see that somewhere? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, is if the model is giving me um, a thumbs up, thumbs down, you know, what goes into that thumbs up, thumbs sure. down? Yeah. Is it a 70% likelihood that gives me a thumbs up. Am I comfortable with that as a, you know, as a line of business? I think all of these things need to be exposed, explained, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. people need to be trained on these concepts so that they can use this tool that's helping them. Yeah. And and I think that's an important part of this because there's another question in the back of my head, but I I, I think there's an explainability piece here Mm -hmm. to the end user, which is, really paramount in in the way that we deploy what we do right i mean it's it, it's incumbent on us to say listen um before we actually go through with this thing this i think is where we're going and this is how it's going to look but what's your thresholds what's what what are the the things that you'd like to understand from this model because you know the the black box sits there in the corner it spits out a score it goes somewhere and off goes perhaps as you mentioned some marketing campaign which is mm-hmm. going to segment users into x and we're going to you know look at the different channels and you know so so a, you know a consumer of that data needs to understand what's happened previously so how do you how do you unpick that with a user, where, where do you use that framework to apply that sort of set of rules or logic that then helps them to understand it? Ah, I see what you're saying now. This is what we're going to do and how we're going to become more efficient or, you know, hit our growth targets or whatever that might be. Yeah, this is really a cognitive engineering problem. I mm-hmm. mean, if we think about information overload versus like, what's the right amount of information people need to, to confidently make a decision. Um, when I think about the cognitive engineering problem, I think about like the pilot with all the alerts and all the, (laughs) you know, buttons to press on the panels. Right. And so it's, you have to really understand and get in the mind of the, the user and the individual who has this business operation to complete. Mm-hmm. And so for us, one of our best practices is to complete a full kind of process and operational workflow of that user. Okay, okay, what are, good. What decisions are they making? Yep. When, why, how, mm-hmm. what do they reference? What do they look at? Mm-hmm. And a lot of it is domain expertise, which yeah. is really hard to encapsulate into a process map. <laughs> but- yeah. No, true. True. It moves it towards that, you know, more kind of human in the loop perspective of getting that person to understand why they're getting information, what they can do with it. And the explainability piece is so key to that. Absolutely. It's We're not just talking about explainability from an auditing perspective. Like when mm. you get audited, you have to tell them what sure. happened and why. We should also be using it for the end user to mm-hmm. get them more informed. I mean, this is a tool you're giving them. Correct. And you can't expect them to just sit back and let an API endpoint do all yeah. the work. Absolutely. Uh, absolutely. And I think, I think that's really key to, to the whole thing. And, and that fires off a whole ton of questions. But the one that I had in my mind was, so when you start an analytics project, when, we're, when you're spinning something up, what's the makeup of that team that you need 
you know, for end to end, because you've talked about the explainability bit, you've talked about product manager, um, you know, you've talked about the data scientist, data engineer, what's, what, what's happening and, and who needs to be a part of that end to end? Yeah, I, I think it depends on how big the initiative is um, and, you know, what kind of an impact it's going to have, mm -hmm. like how high priority is it? Um, because ideally, I can tell you how I would staff a project. Well, yeah, I, I mean, okay, realistically, let's, yeah, you know. let's let's say we're a mid-sized organization and we're looking at spinning up an analytics team and we're thinking, OK, we've just got some general BI in, but we want to do some more scalable predictive or prescriptive analytics. And we're thinking, oh, what do we do? You know, I'm a bit stumped, mm -hmm. you know. Let, let's so take that. I would always start with having somebody with a product background or somebody who can understand how to build products in a very mm -hmm. iterative way. A lot mm -hmm. of people would consider this like a product owner, product manager, someone with, um, and I'd, I would always say it's helpful for that person to have an analytics background. So sure. we do a lot of training for people who are in product who want to mm -hmm. do analytics specific products. Um, because there are some concepts that you need to know to have productive conversations essentially yeah. around what kind of requirements you need to gather. Mm -hmm. um, there's a whole kind of component of assessing risk for that model. Um, and especially if you're going to follow the guidelines of ethical best, yeah. best practices from an ethical perspective. So I would always say somebody who's knowledgeable in analytics, who has a product background um, involved in that conversation leading leading that project mm -hmm. and coordinating. Mm -hmm. It'd help if they had some project management experience as well so that they can figure out how to do things effectively. Yeah. Um, and so those are the two personas that we actually focus on with our framework because they can kind of like, they can organize the whole thing. Right. Um, and then if you, you know, if you're going to build a BI solution, you need to have a BI developer, um, somebody who has a design background as well. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, if you're going to build a model, you have to have a data scientist um, or an advanced analyst, whatever it calls for, essentially, for that solution mm -hmm. you're building. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. If it's going to be a production grade um, solution that is going to run near real time or um, have you know specific constraints around that, get a data engineer involved. Um, it, it's going to save you a lot of headaches. Yeah. Um, and as you go to deploy it, depending on what kind of um, systems you have in place, you may want somebody from your infrastructure team involved in that conversation. You may want someone from your security team, most likely involved in that conversation. Yeah. Um, and then you may want someone with a DevOps background who can help you with the kind of CI, CI CD workflow mm -hmm. and get the whole thing rigorously tested into a production system and ready to go. Um, and typically, if you have a, a well-running machine, like that is the process anyway. And so those mm -hmm. people are involved if code gets put into a production system yep. anyway. Yeah. Um, yep. But those are kind of the key players from my perspective. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I, th I think that's, that, that's interesting. I've asked the question many times before, but I think it's very good the way that you've laid it out. And I, and I do see often that the product manager or the owner or, you know, that side of it is often left out. It, it's, it's, it's not really brought in because, you know, it's, it's a, we're, we're doing something with data. And I often say, you know, who cares about the data? I mean, I know it sounds crazy, but why should I really worry about it? You know, I'm really worried about the endpoint. 
mm-hmm. um, you know, and what's that action outcome? What 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 is the user going to do? What's the what what's the human interface going to be 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 doing with this thing? And that's that's the key to it because we've got so much data coming out of our ears. You know, I mean, it's so so you know, I often see that as a as a as a downfall of many organisations. They just talk about data. Um, and therefore, you know, uh, one of the, you know, and I, I really like the, the integrated uh, framework that you've got, because alongside that, it's, it's interesting how I've, you know, I've built many frameworks over time. And I, I see that as very much a, uh, a, you know, building that last mile, really helping secure that scalability factor, which I think is still one of the big, biggest challenges. So I think it's fantastic that you're doing that. Listen, you know, in, in women analytics, and I'm, I'm, I'm you know, let's, let's talk about something else. You must see trends and you must think about certain things that are happening or going to happen, or what, what, what are the things that people are talking about that are really on their mind? What's happening out there that you feel from, you know, I think your event was what, last week? Um, yeah. You know, so what was the output and where do you think that our industry is being shaped and what are the sort of opportunities that exist? Yeah, I think, well, there's a massive conversation going on around ethics, as there should yeah. be. Yeah. Um, and so that's going to continue to be a conversation. Mm-hmm. We get, and to be more specific too, because ethics is a huge yeah, topic. A, yeah, very um, I think there's a lot of confusion on how to create something tangible around this conversation of ethics that organizations can go and do and put in as procedures and policies. Um, and our, our keynote, Aodeli, did a fantastic job on her uh, delivery. She kind of went through a lot of those tactical um, techniques that people can okay. apply to their projects. Mm-hmm. The hard part is it's going to take more time. And sure, so sure. that's not something the business wants to hear. Yeah. They don't want to hear that these already really long data science projects are going to take even longer. Um, and they don't want to hear that there's probably going to be more pushback because with these types of ethical conversations, what ends up yielding from them is we can't use this. Mm-hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. or we can use this, but only in these particular scenarios, or we need to get more data. We need to invest in more data. And these are things that the business have heard for however long now. And they're like, okay, we've invested a lot of money in getting more data. We've invested a lot of money into talent, into all of these governing processes to get projects done quicker. And now we're about to redefine kind of this ethical lens Mm -hmm. to make things more fair and equitable Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. it's going to add it's going to add more costs and it's going to add more um overhead essentially yeah 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 i i think the whole ethics piece is is interesting purely from um not just from a pure technology model but also from a perhaps a uh a government and you know, uh, are we going to ask the government to drive out the ethics behind explainable um, and ethical AI and and so on and so, you know, so, or is it the companies who start it and how do we start to bridge those conversations between um, those, those large corporates and, you know, governments around the world? Is it someone like the World Economic Forum who starts to talk about it and permeates that across, you know, the, the whole worldview? I mean, it's, it's, it's a massive scale. What are some of the, what are some of the small points, I think, as, as you mentioned from your speaker, what, is, what, what are the top three things that you would say organizations really need to think about? 
So, um, and I mentioned earlier about kind of additional costs. I think in the long run, we will actually see it be more cost effective. Mm -hmm. So I just want to clarify that too. Um, initially, we'll probably see more costs, but I think there'll be an the impact. Run, yeah. There will be yeah. a significant impact. Mm -hmm. um, AKA our customers will be better served and want to engage with us more. Sure. Um, but to your point uh, about regulations, I think we need to see more regulation and more restriction around this industry mm -hmm. um, because we cannot leave it up to these larger companies to kind of self-govern yeah. on, on these topics. We've, we've just seen too many bad examples of that. Mm -hmm. um, I think there's uh, now as far as who, I don't know. And, and can we come up with intelligent enough regulations to apply to industries who haven't seen it yet. Um, I hope so. There are some highly, highly regulated industries already. Of course there are. Yeah. Um, that have yeah. gone through this, like the pharmaceutical industry, mm. um, like finance, you know, they get regularly audited on all mm. of their models. Same mm. thing with insurance. So some of these industries have felt the pressure of regulation and audits already. I think we just need to start thinking about them more generally and applying them more broadly. Yes, and I think there's there's initiatives and drives that are coming out of, um, say, the European Union, mm -hmm. who are now who've launched something called the Data Commons. So how can we ethically use people's data, um, and and how can we, the people, start to absolutely um, uh, uh, manage what we own, our asset, which is ourselves and and our data that is driven by many of these companies. So I think to your point, yes, we can't let let people self-regulate we need to have some framework um, that exists um, that is applied to this gamut. I mean, it's, it's you know, ethics is, a, a, again, a massive piece. Um, you know, I, I can imagine all of the organizations now thinking that they're going to have to reverse engineer every single model that they've built right. um, and explain all of those models and understand the decisions that have come out and have driven, been driven you know, from those models. So I think that's going to be the bit which is going to be quite intense. But there any other things that, you know, were, were, were of interest or curious to you that came out of the, the, the or that you see as those trends from women in analytics? Yeah, I, I would say too, like putting, putting stuff more into the hands of the consumers or the people being affected by things, mm -hmm. um, letting them know how they're being affected by them. Sure. Um, that's something that we've not done a ton of yet. So mm -hmm. like you can even think about, I mean, there's, there's not huge implications to this, but if you've used like Spotify or Pandora, like you get a recommendation of a song. Now, do they need to tell you like how they recommended it to you? Yeah. You might yeah. be interested, Yeah. Um, but probably overkill. Um, so I, I think about those types of use cases of putting the power back into the hands of the yes. people who are affected by that. Yeah. Um, and so that's what I kind of mean about regulation as well as like mm -hmm. enforcing mm -hmm. those types of, um, I guess, transparency and clarity around that, Yeah. Um, which to your point is going to be really challenging. But I would mm -hmm. say another topic um, that I've seen be very popular uh, is around context. Mm -hmm. and so, mm -hmm. um, you know, the other keynote we had what was, called Metadata Matters. Her talk was Metadata Matters. Okay. So Michelle delivered that and did a fantastic job, but this whole concept of like persisting context from data capture to usage yeah. is one of the most challenging pieces of any project. And when we talk about how long projects are taking, it's to get up to speed on the context typically. Mm -hmm. And I, let, let me just unpack that for a moment. Are you talking about the lineage of that data? 
and exactly where it's come from and how it's attributed internally and what systems it passes through, where it ends up. Is that what you're talking about in terms of that context? Yes, to an extent. Okay. So yeah. um, that, but also a lot of the metadata that we typically mm -hmm. um, don't capture or yeah. don't have a process to capture. Right. Which is like, if I see a data field, yes, it's nice to know the definition of the data field. It's nice to know where it came from. It's sure. nice to know how often it's refreshed um, and what values it can take on, mm -hmm. but also give me the, the context of it. Mm -hmm. So um, in what system is it being? Is it you? Yeah. Is it, is it yeah. being captured or what relationships does it have with other fields in my tables? The, yeah. all of, the more context we can provide about data the better it's going to be used and the more accurately it's going to be used. Yeah. And this is a huge challenge because a lot of organizations context is like dependent upon the use case. So you've got it one field, but for different use cases, it may mean, or, um, you know, it may mean different things. Yeah. Yeah, no. And I think you're right. And I, I actually, I, I think that's, that's one of the things as, as an end user or as someone who's thinking, you know, w working with a, uh, uh, right at the beginning to to get that those you know requirements or building that journey, I think that's an important factor because we simply, you know, may have a number of different fields being used across a number of different systems have very different meaning. Mm -hmm. and I think that's the whole thing about you know the, the semantics and meaning of an organ you know across an organization of how people perceive different sets of activity or data and how we actually apply logic or you know decision to it you know and so my decision about one field may be someone else's completely different context and meaning because they're actually using that data to be applied to another type of activity or model or whatever it might be so yeah yep. yeah that that that's largely a massive issue um and i know that we've had things like data dictionaries and you know mm -hmm. try and unpack all of that stuff and really you know understanding the metadata behind it yeah i i think that's a that's an interesting point and probably probably something that quite a few people um you know uh we 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 tend to try and do that, but I think it's the granularity. I think systems are, are needed to drive that sort of activity and get a, a complete view of it because it's pretty, it's a pretty overpowering um, uh, condition. I would have thought, you know, trying to piece all of that together. Um, and this is why I love mathematicians because they yeah. constantly ask you, like, what do you mean by that? <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah, true. You need those types of people in the conversation because, yeah. like, mentally, we will fill any gap with yeah. our own kind of context. Yeah. And true. Got to keep like drilling down to like, what do we actually mean by that? Yeah. And I think it goes back to the, the beginning of our conversation where we said, you know, you can literally use data for any purpose mm -hmm. and you can you can transform it, misconstrue it. You, you, you know, you can sweat it to, to tell any kind of story, but it's that contextual bit which we need within within the business um, and within, you know, you know, analytics teams also who need to understand that as well. I don't think it's just the business teams that really are grappling with that. I think it's, you know, and, and, and I think that's one of the things that we probably need to account for in the, what I call the triumvirate that needs to come together for the technology teams, the business team, the business functions, and then the sort of analytics or data teams that are trying to bring all of this stuff together. Listen, we're, we're, we're getting uh, up, up to the, the end of our time. So um, if I wanted to get into helping, supporting, being a part of women in analytics, how would I go about it? 
Yeah, you could go to our website, womeninanalytics.com. We have lots of different ways for people to be involved. We have an upcoming conference in July that you can attend if you're interested in attending that. Um, we have a leaders network. So if you are a woman leader in the analytics space and you want to connect with other women leaders or you want to be a mentor or you want to uh, lead learning groups or networking groups, you can apply to our leaders network. Um, we also have a free membership platform that you can sign up for. Um, there are paid tiers for additional benefits, but you can sign up and access our resources, upcoming events, partnership discounts. Um, you can write articles. So there's a whole bunch of ways that you can engage and, and add to the community um, for free. So if you're interested in just joining, you can go to our website and, and find the platform there. And they can reach out to you, no doubt, as well. They can. Yes, you can add me on LinkedIn or follow me on Twitter. Those are good options, too. <laughs> well, that's that's great. Regan, um, it's been a real pleasure to have you on. And uh, we really thank you. You know, I'd like to thank you for your, your work in, in, in women analytics and bringing that diversity to the industry. Um, it's, it's much needed. So uh, keep going. And uh, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you so much for having me. This has been really fun. Oh, it's a pleasure. Thanks.